today's episode of the Velo News Podcast, brought to you by Velo News Print Magazine. That's right. Velo News' September, October issue, the print magazine, is on newsstands now. And it has, I think, an amazing picture on the cover of virtual racing under the tagline, The Future Is Now. That's right. I did a big feature on Zwift. Uh, We also have stories on e-bike racing and e-road bikes. And my story on Zwift and virtual racing uh, digs into a topic that we talked about on the podcast a few months ago, and that is how these virtual races are actually giving um, pro women's riders um, additional opportunities to race, to get exposure, and to get prize money. Um, I know that a lot of our readers and listeners have read about how, you know, the domestic racing scene has been under pressure, under financial pressure in the last few years, and a lot of the big races have gone away. And this year, Zwift rolled out two different series, both of which paid pretty good prize cash, and especially for the women's racers, um, um, this was this was a big deal, and so I uh, took a deep dive into the racing league, talked to the athletes, the team directors to get a sense for the tactics, how they did in the races, and just what the future could hold for pro cycling in general. Knowing that uh, you know to put on a traditional road bike race, you're talking thousands of dollars in road closures, having to get sponsors, having to deal with local governments, all this stuff. Uh, to put on a professional road bike race on Zwift. All you're doing is like sending out some emails and getting riders to tune in at the same time. So, features called Plugged In in the September-October issue of Velo News. Get your copy now on newsstands. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Velo Podcast, a very special Monday morning episode of the podcast. Fred Dreyer here in the new Velo News World headquarters. Um, I don't know if I actually told people, but we actually moved headquarters. Uh, still in Boulder, Colorado. Same general area, just a little bit different um, by the railroad tracks. New coffee shops. We're trying to get used to just the whole new scene uh, in general. Um, one of the other companies in the complex we're at, I think they make like fake meat products out of jackfruit it means an interesting aroma wafts through the uh world headquarters every couple days um you know when i think of interesting aromas one man really comes to mind, and that of course is andrew hood uh <laughs> andy hood coming to us from the man cave in spain you are back from the welta espana andy give our our keyed in listeners a quick update on your recovery from your bicycle crash earlier this year how's it coming along Hi, Fred. Yeah, back, uh, back, back here after a pretty exciting Welt Espana. I'm still limping along, slouching along, uh, left bone slowly healing, coming back together. I uh, opted not to have surgery, so the old bones heal slow. So it's a little bit slower than I think I expected it to 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 take to uh, get back in working order, but almost there. Good enough to travel. You guys were cracking the whip there in Boulder headquarters, so I had to get back out on the road, but uh, gladly. To yeah, say the least. I didn't tell uh, listeners in my intro here, but this current issue of Print Magazine has your full first-person rundown of the crash uh, alongside a really nice illustration of Andy Hood crashing his bike into a couch and uh, talking about how you watched the Tour de France from the couch this year for the first time. So uh, just by the issue, by the issue, just to read Andy's first-person account of his harrowing time crashing and then watching the Tour de France from his couch and actually getting to see what goes on. 
at the tour. Yeah, it was, it was actually quite good fun to watch the race. Uh, you know, this Vuelta España, being back on the road, made me realize just how nice it is to kick back and just take in a whole stage. You know, so many times these days, races are broadcast uh, start to finish during as many stage races. Uh, a luxury, really, that uh, we've come to enjoy. But what a Vuelta, Fred. I mean, what, what's your take? I thought this was a, a pretty good Vuelta. Um, over the weekend, I was pretty hot on it, especially after Pogacar's big red on Saturday. I kind of gave it initially a four out of five Arujo ranking. Uh, kind of knocked it down by half Arujo. I think it's going to be about a three and a half for me. It was a very good Welta. Very strong. Saw some interesting storylines throughout the Welta. But to me, it kind of just lacked that that big GC battle. To me, it was almost a race to see if Roglic would lose the race rather than see like a big battle between two or three true contenders for the overall. Yeah, Hoodie, I'm with you. This is going to be our big uh, Welta wrap-up podcast. We're going to talk about the race, the storylines. We're going to take a deep dive into some of the stages, namely Stage 17 and Stage 19. That was the crosswind stage and then the wait or race uh, stage. So I guess as a 30,000 foot question of how do I rate this Welta? Yeah, I'm with you. Like after that Pogachar attack on stage 20 that got him onto the podium, I was flying high on this thing. Four, four and a half uh, glasses of Rioja. And then, you know, yeah, started to pinch myself, kind of come down from that high and realize, you know, uh, Roglic held the lead for how long? I mean, he was in the driver's seat at this race. Ne- I mean, he w- they they tried to challenge him, but he never really was challenged. Um, and poor Roglic, you know, I just need a little bit more personality from him in these post-race interviews, Hoodie. You know, you're watching. There's some thrilling Welta stage. There's been attacks. There's been drama. All this crazy stuff is going on. Alejandro Valverde's throwing haymakers. Pogachar is just popping off. I mean, it's insane. And then they like tune in with Rogla at the finish line and they're like, oh, Primo's a crazy day today. How did it go? Yes, well, it was good. I think, you know, it was good. Legs, uh, okay, it was good. And I'm just like, ah, man. I mean, you know, we see this sometimes with champions where their English isn't that good and therefore they're not able to properly express themselves. But I think with Roglic, his, his attempts to be really coy and really cagey in some of these interviews and this analysis – I kind of actually took the Welta down a couple pegs because it was just like, ah, uh, okay. And it's tough because, like, we've talked about this before. And I talked to his agent on the slopes of this mountain in the uh, outside of Dubai. And I was just like, hey, you know, you know Primo. I was like, what? What's this guy like? What You know, we don't get much from him. He's like, oh, he's so funny and he's gracious. He's this big personality. He's always bringing people gifts and cracking jokes. And he's really witty. And I'm just like, daft. Tell him he needs to let a little bit of the cat out of the bag in these interviews because, you know, well to where he was never really challenged and he was kind of sleepy. Three... Three glasses of Rioja hoodie. That's where I'm putting it. Three. <laughs> knocked, knocked it down that much, did it? Well, there was some uh, – towards the end there, you know, the, the Spanish media, you know, this is their race. The Welta, all the Spanish journalists are there and they love to play up to cycling heroes. They got to tell a story. They got to sell newspapers. And you got this guy, Rogic, coming in from Slovenia, not the most expressive of characters. I mean, granted, you know, he races exceptionally. His, the way he races – should be good enough, right? Oh yeah. But as journalists, as journalists and as fans, you know, we want to have a little spark along with uh, the the the, the flair of the race. And uh, towards the end of the race, there was some open open antagonism. Some of the German journalists were just getting besides themselves because Roglic would come in, answer literally three questions, and walk out. And he even he even did that on the, on the final night 
after up in uh, Sierra de Gredos. I mean, granted, that was a, a, a very long transfer waiting for Robles to get off that mountain all the way back down to Madrid. But the next day's stage didn't start till five o'clock. He was only there for literally three questions. And, and and typically the winner's press conference goes on for at least a half an hour. That's a chance for uh, the media to really dig into the winner, to get some perspective, a little more detail on what happened in the race, the key moments of the race, talk about a person's background, get a little bit into the per- person's character and personality. And Rillich just had none of that. He didn't want to give anything away. And even yesterday on the podium in, in, uh, in Madrid, you know, they gave the, they passed the microphone up to Roglic, traditional chance for uh, the riders to, to publicly thank the fans and, and to say a few things. And we've seen some pretty remarkable finish line speeches over the years, you know, from uh, our friend Mr. Lance Armstrong back in the day to even uh, Bernal this year saying thanks to everyone in three different languages. Roglic literally, he said about two or three lines and and walked away. <laughs> that was as good as it got. I think we're going to have to sit uh, old Ard Birnens, the uh, PR guy for Yumbo Visma down and just be like, you know, give Roglic not media training, but just like uh, like personality training, you know? Because, you know, like keep hearing these things that the guy has a big personality and he's a lot of fun. Um, he just not needs to like let it fly. I, I wonder how much of it is related to the war of words from the Giro when Nibali was telling him to come over to his house and check out his, his uh, trophy case and how there was, uh, you know, Nibali's obviously trying to get under his skin and trying to do it, you know, through the media. I wonder how much of that Roglic, you know, uh, felt a little burned by. And it's just like, OK, I'm not giving you guys anything now. Yeah, perhaps he's he's a little gun shy in the media, but man, he rode a almost a near perfect race. Uh, he really didn't have a, a real serious challenge, I don't think, during this entire race. Uh, you remember that Jumbo Visma they crashed in the opening team time trial, so he might have actually been, you know, in that scenario of being in the leader's jersey almost start to finish. Because in many ways, he was the virtual leader, even in that first week when uh, the first kind of first hard mountain stages, you know, Rugwich was right there, even when he was uh, uh, that one day Havalambre when uh, Lopez attacked. I think he got 10, 12, maybe 15 seconds on Roglic. Uh, Roglic lost a little bit of time when he went down in the gravel sector across the Andorra in the big uh, storm. But once he got that Poe time trial under his belt, he was just on cruise control. And we saw him attack at Las Machuchos last week, really take control of this race. And it was a stellar performance. And for me, it really just is a coming of age race for Roglic. For this team, you know, this team's grown out of the ashes, really, of the whole Rabobank thing. That went, that, the whole team almost burned down. They had no money, no real sponsors. They had a few kind of old key riders on that team that stuck through that program. Robert Haysink, Stephen Kweiswick, and a few others. And they built this program up over the last couple of years. And Roglic was one of those key players that came in, I think, 2015-16. And, you know, he was a ski jumper. He didn't have a lot of skills in the bike. And to see this guy win this Welto España start to finish complete control domination. It wasn't easy. He had, a, he had to dodge a few bullets. He crashed three three times in the last uh, week or so. Uh, but for him to win the way he did really just puts him up to a whole new level. And Jumbo Visma and Roglic with Dumoulin coming on board next year, man, they're poised to give Ineos a run for the money of the tour. Yeah. And of course, the storyline today, Monday coming out of it was the journalist asked him, well, what next? And he definitely pointed at the Tour de France. And when you look at him and his style as a rider, okay, maybe he didn't have the legs to survive a big punishing Giro d'Italia with big backbreaking climbing days day after day after day. But 
He's able to win this Vuelta España, which is comprised of, you know, decent sized climbs, some steep climbs, but the time trials. And I look at the Tour de France and I guess, you know, it all depends on the route. But traditionally, what we see from the Tour de France route is one or two good sized time trials, a few soaring days in the Alps, maybe a couple steep days here in the Pyrenees, but not the type of like bludgeon you to death type courses we see at the Giro. So, you know, I look at a rider like Roglic, knowing that he has those time trials in a course, it makes perfect sense to say he is a Tour de France rider of the future. I mean, you know, we often look at the Vuelta España as this is the this is the race of the first time Grand Tour winners. This is the race for the future Grand Tour, for the future Tour de France champions. Um, you know, Chris Froome, 2011, that's where his big emergence came from. Um, Yates won it last year. And so I see, you know, there. I think there's a very good chance that we could be talking about the 2019 uh, Vuelta years from now as like, okay, this was the this was the turning point in what would become Roglic versus Bernal for four years. Um, this is the real, you know, 2019 is the real hit the reset button on pro cycling's grand tour um, battles to come, which I think is really exciting. You know, you have a piece on the site today about how this Welta signified a generational shift where we had um, stars of the past, the present, and the future all hitting these Big moments, um, but you know, Valverde, Pogacar, um, Gilbert, and uh, Roglic. Um, take us through that. I mean, wh- wh- why do you think that this Welta was such a high point for for this generational shift in pro cycling? Yeah, it, it was an interesting race in the sense that we saw this thread that we've been talking about really going into last season, these, this new generation coming in, and we've really seen it explode this year with these young writers we've talked about on the podcast, written about online and in the magazine, that suddenly we see these guys coming really almost out of nowhere and just producing these over-the-top uh, performances. And, of course, at this welter, we saw Tade Pogacar, last year's winner of the Tour de Avenir. You know, he came into this race – not really too much expectations. Um, speaking to Machine uh, over the weekend, of course, he was saying, oh, yeah, we knew all along that Pogacar could do well here. But at the beginning of this Welta, I don't think anyone was really expecting, you know, maybe a top 10, maybe a stage win. That's a realistic first Grand Tour for a very young rider. That's a very good result to do something like that. But what he did to win three stages, win the best young rider's jersey, which is a new classification, brought back to the Welta this year, and finished third in the way he did it in uh, Saturday's ride across the Sierra de Gredos with that long tack, I think almost 40 Ks out. The way he did it coming over those attacks, Astana was driving hard, trying to split that bunch up, trying to get Lopez to try to get up onto the podium. And Pogachar, who was behind Lopez, leapfrogged uh, Lopez and Nairo Quintana and really put Alejandro Valverde's second place in danger by the way he was riding and just kept pouring it on. Uh, Valverde had a funny thing at the finish line saying that uh, his radio wasn't working and he had no idea how far Pogacar was up the road. And it was the fans alongside the road saying, Alejandro, get moving. (laughs) They were yelling him out the time splits in the final climb. So that's when Alejandro finally jumped. To kind of, you know, he had to kind of go all in to even save his second spot. So Pogachar is this kind of latest, greatest of this of this new Generation Z, man. I love these guys. No fear. They have no fear of the consequences. And they have yet been humiliated. You know, 
Remember that youthful exuberance we had, Fred, when we were young? We, 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 we feared nothing. We feared nothing. And now we've been beat down by life, you know, taking a few beatings. So now we think twice before we do anything stupid. But hey, when you're 20 years old and there's someone says, hey, man, if you attack from 40Ks out, you can finish on the world this month your podium. And they do it. Hey, I love man, it. you should go swing on that rope swing over the uh, ditch there. You'll be fine. Hey, man, you should go move to New York City and go to grad school out there. You'll be fine. <laughs> hey, let's put some gasoline in that pit fire and jump our BMX bike over it. Nothing will happen. <laughs> oh, I love that uh, analogy. Yeah, they're like the uh, the young, dumb, uh, energetic young guys who just no one has – they haven't seen their, their hopes and dreams just completely crushed before. <laughs> so why not attack with 40K out on the final hard day of the welter? What's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah, I mean you'll still be you'll still get accolades for trying, and but of course these guys have class. That's that's incredible. You know we all saw you know Bernal. We talked about Bernal. We've talked about Vanderpool. We've talked about uh, Remco, Evan Pool coming up. I mean these guys are really just putting a lot of energy into a sport that, to be honest, you know we need some new big stars in cycling. You know we've had this kind of a, a team sky domination for almost almost this entire decade, and you know Chris Froome is a really nice guy, but it's just he's not not the kind of personality that's going to drive the sport. Some of these news guys coming, new guys coming up can can fill that gap. Also, all of these news guys, all these news guys, all these new guys are winning in with with really flashy styles that are completely against the Team Sky Ineos way of controlling the racing. You know, I mean, look at Vanderpool; he won three stages in the overall at the Tour of Britain, and just with these explosive swashbuckling attacks on these very steep climbs that no one could follow. I thought there was a great clip of one of these, uh, one of his winning attacks where uh, Matteo Trentin went with Vanderpool at the beginning of the climb and then Vanderpool ended up ditching him and winning. And as he's crossing the line, uh, Trentin is giving the full on shrug emoji. He's just shrugging. He's just like, ah, there's nothing I can do, man. Like I'm trying over here, you know? And so, you know, Vanderpool is that strong. With Remco, same sort of thing. I mean, he's winning classical San Sebastian with a big swashbuckling attack. Um, Pogachar, he's not a wait and get it done type of guy. I mean, we saw at the Tour of California when he won on the Baldi stage. I mean, he gave me this analysis and this breakdown of his strategic chess moving when he's, you know, sort of toying with Higita in this final battle. And you're like, oh, my God, you are you are such a deep thinker. So you could tell they're really thinking about it. But it's not like, a, well, I had my team, sm- you know, smush everyone on the last climb and then I went for it. It was like, you know, I knew I had to get these bonus seconds and I knew that if I, you know, basically hit the brakes into the final cor- turn, I might make Higita go wide and then I could take the ups, you know, the inside line, et cetera, et cetera. So these guys are winners. They're winners. They're talented. But they're like... They're kind of – they're bringing the mojo back. They're bringing excitement back to cycling in the way that they're winning. Uh, So here's hoping that um, they don't all get put on teams that want to go with the uh, Team Ineos way of just uh, squeezing the life out of pro cycling. Uh, So you were talking about the generational shift, you know, past, present, and future. So for the future – at the Welt, it was definitely Pogacar. Okay, he's 20 years old. He's winning three stages, dramatic fashion. We can all agree that like this guy is going places, he's going to do stuff. For the past, 
I was, I was, I gotta say, I was pretty impressed with old Valverde. You know, as cycling fans, we give Valverde a lot of grief and all cycling fans on Twitter. He's like the least, po- he's, you brought this up, hoodie. He's the most popular guy in Spain and the least popular guy on Twitter. Oh, Valverde. <laughs> but, you know, kudos to Alejandro Valverde, uh, finishing second place at the Welta. This is his best Grand Tour finish since 2012 when he also finished second place at the, uh, Welta. And, and we talked before last week about how he's become this sort of punching bag, this sparring partner. You know, he's never going to win, but he's always going to be the guy getting attacked. But he rode a very cagey race. There were times when it looked like he was going to be challenged by his very own teammate, Nairo Quintana. He never went out publicly, never disparaged Quintana or Movistar's tactics. He just kind of put his head down, raced a smart race, won a stage, and and kind of did what he needed to do, especially on that stage 20 to finish on the podium. So, you're in Spain. I mean, what are people talking about uh, with Valverde after his second place ride? Yeah, they're, they're hailing Valverde as the as the great, uh, uh, you know, the great uh, champion, the veteran champion, almost like the Rocky, you know, coming back and and beating uh, beating some of these youngsters and and just like in fact today they had a, a an event at the uh, Movistar Telefonica headquarters in in uh, in Madrid celebrating Alejandro's uh, Valverde's uh, year in the rainbow jersey. Of course, he's the defending champion. You know, he became quite close to becoming uh, the first world champion in a long time of winning a Grand Tour. I don't think we've seen that since uh, maybe maybe well. Don't hit me up on that. We'll have to check that. Check the old pro cycling stats on that one. But I know it's been a, it's been a long time. Let's put it that way. But uh, you know, it's like had had you know had Roglic one of those crashes because he, he did crash a couple times in that last week. You know, had he not gotten back up, you know, it would have been Valverde's victory in this Vuelta España. And uh, you know, Valverde is getting a lot of kudos in Spain. You know, for his professionalism, for his dedication, his sacrifice, his uh, doggedness, the fact that he still wins and how old he is. And he is quite humble in, the, in his public uh, declarations. He's, he's never going to stir the pot too much. He's kind of a, a working man's hero. You know, he's not a flashy winner like uh, like Perito Rodriguez or Alberto Contador were in their heydays. And he's obviously not a Miguel Linderain, but uh, he's the best that Spain's got right now. Let's be honest as well. Uh, Spain has kind of a vacuum right now, I think, in, in Grand Tour talent. So they're really embracing uh, Valverde right now and celebrating his jersey and just trying to uh, really pump some life into Spanish cycling. Because to be honest, they don't really have a whole lot of talent kind of behind them. They've got uh, Enrique Mas, who comes to Movistar and Mark Soler, who ended up ninth in this Welta, did a pretty good Welta. You know, those are the two guys that are going to be carrying uh, Spanish hopes into the future. But I think both of those guys, as we all know, you know, still have something to prove and really to, to, to cons- consider themselves as the true heirs of that generation that included Contador, Sastre, uh, Valverde, and all those guys. Yeah, Hoodie, earlier this year for our uh, January issue, you had a big, long profile about Valverde that dug into the Valverde conundrum, which is, you know, yeah, all right, you know. American, Anglo, basically the English-speaking cycling fans hate the guy because of his uh, links to Operation Puerto and the ban and the fact that he's never disgusted and never admitted anything and, and been one of these sort of unrepentant guys from cycling's old doping era who then came back and has continued to win. Yet in Spain, he is this beloved figure because, like you said, I mean, he has been good for so long, but he has these humble roots. I mean, he's still... Uh, he still goes on the group ride in Murcia, his hometown. He still hangs out with his old group of buddies that he grew up racing with. He's the Spanish humble champion. And I mean, he is this figure from the past, but as he showed at this Vuelta, 
this this welter of the past, present, and future, uh, he can still follow wheels and he can still get on a Grand Tour podium. So, Hoodie, when I think about this final week of the Welta, we had a couple of very dramatic moments. Stage 20, Pogachar attacking to get his way onto the podium. But before that, we had a couple of stages that um, were, you know, coming into this race looked like seemingly innocuous stages that ended up being complete chaotic um, really interesting stages, uh, and I wanted to take a deep dive into those. The first was stage 17 to Guadalajara, which happened last Wednesday. Of course, the day after we record the podcast, there is complete and utter chaos. And this was the day in which the peloton was ripped to shreds by crosswinds on this flat, hilly transfer stage, and Nairo Quintana ended up gaining time. And what I loved about this, you were at the finish line, and you filed this great piece called uh, Inside the Welta's Hardest Day. And you talked to all these riders about what it was like when all of a sudden this huge group gets together, goes up the road, and the group behind doesn't – it's kind of touch and go whether or not they're going to be able to keep the race together. So take us through that stage and what were the riders telling you at the finish line about, first of all, why – how did this happen? And then second of all, what impact it had on their their legs and spirits? Yeah, it was one of those days that uh, I think people were not expecting too much to happen. You know, it was uh, kind of had a breakaway written all over it. You know, you follow the traditional kind of script. Group goes up the road, no GC threat. Everyone rides it in easy and uh, easy day in the saddle. But everyone woke up that morning, Fred. It was howling tailwinds. You know, it was clipping along at a good 15, 20 kilometer an hour, an hour tailwinds, kind of tail crosswinds up there in the kind of the high Spanish Northern Meseta, it's pretty barren up there. It almost looks like Africa. Just wide open plains, not a lot of cover. So all, all the old sport directors and all the old veterans, they had they had their hair up, you know, right away. Everyone's like, oh, this is this is gonna be chaos. And it was. You saw, you know, riders were nervous. I was trying to talk to Sepp Kuss that morning. You know, he was kind of dancing around, was getting all nervous, didn't want to talk. And he, in fact he apologized to me at that finish line that day. He goes, Oh man, we were really nervous about today's stage. <laughs> and then uh riders were on the rollers that morning, all the sport directors were all tense because they knew it was going to blow up and sure enough right as the flag dropped none other than quick step you know that's their playing car they're out there just wailing that i think they had seven of their eight guys in that break that day and none other than mr nairo quintana who everyone had kind of written off snuck in there with a couple of movistar teammates and boom the race was on there's a group of about 15 well the group initially was quite big about 30 guys hausler was out there a few other guys kind of couldn't quite keep that pace because it was so so fast and they just went full gas all the way to line 220 k's you know a long stage too at that point of the race there was a lot of really busted up people at that finish line that day yeah i think there are a couple of things that contributed to it first it's late in the race stage 17 so people are already tired and you know when you come into a stage like that where it's fast and flat and long everyone knows like you said there's anticipation everyone knows it's going to be hard but if if you're not if you're like not you know, totally dialed in. If you're not set for a day of suffering, I could see how, you know, after a few Ks, you just kind of throwing the hands up being like, oh my God, we've been kicking our heads in for 16 days in a row. And now you're wanting me to do like flat power intervals as hard as I can go for, for this long. Ugh. And then the second thing is just, you know, quick step. They came into this race and Gilbert wins a stage and uh, Jakobsen wins a stage and uh, they're having a, tr- a tremendous amount of success. And I think they must have come into this stage and said, hey, look, we're a Belgian team. We thrive in the wind. We thrive in terrain like this. We're already having a really successful Vuelta. We're probably the strongest team here that's not not a, you know, not a tried and true GC stage. 
Let's see what we can do. I mean, afterwards, Gilbert said this was a historic day because of how crazy it was and that the average was like 55K an hour or something like that. You know, he was spun out in his 54 tooth uh, big ring uh, across some of these sections because of the of the, uh, of the tailwind. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. So what were what were guys telling you at the finish line? What, and what was the demeanor of the riders at the finish line that day? Yeah, I was. I got, got a chance to talk to a few guys. People just couldn't believe, you know, right off the gun in the gutter, there was panic uh, rippled through the main pack. You know, especially when you had uh, uh, you had uh, Quintana up the road like that. Uh, Roglic and I think Yumbo Visma got lucky because they missed that move, but so did uh, Stana as well as uh, Pogacar. So they found some allies on the road. Yumbo did some pretty heavy work in the first half of that race to kind of keep it close. I think they kept that gap to about six minutes because with a group that big. You don't want it to let, especially when you have a guy like Quintana in there, you know, that could just turn into 20 minutes in no time. So they had to do a lot of work in the first part of that stage to keep that gap under under a reasonable amount of time. And then Astana and uh, UAE came over the top and gave them a little bit of help to kind of just drive the pack home. The guys coming across the line were just were just wiped out. You know, not a lot of people wanted to talk. You know, we got we'd ask a rider, hey, comment, and they'd be, yeah, make it quick. Uh, I talked to uh, Lawson Craddock was in the move that day. Who Lawson, by the way, had a great welta. I think he was in four breakaways, a couple of I think four top tens and stages. Had a really excellent performance. He's going to be. Very strong coming into the world this year for the American team in Yorkshire. And he just said, you know, I was in that break and I thought to myself, no way are we going to be crazy enough to ride full gas for 220 Ks. And he said we were. <laughs> so it was just uh, it was just one of the you know, to me, it's like this is how Grand Tours are won and lost these days. You know, it's the racing is so controlled, like you were saying before, Fred, how Team Sky, Ineos, you know, they had this formula down to smother the field, you know, just plow everybody into the ground, you know, carry their leaders up to the top of the climb, let them finish off with five Ks to go. And that's the women, women formula in a, in a Grand Tour. So teams are trying to be creative. They're trying to find ways to get openings. That's why you're seeing these attacks in, un, in unexpected places. Anytime the wind kicks up, that's an opportunity to make a difference. And in a big stage like this, in the wind, you can gain more time in a big split in a race in a stage like that than you can in a time trial or a mountaintop finish. Yeah, I mean, uh, the GC teams really had to kill themselves to try and control it and get the gap under five minutes. I think right at the finish line, it was uh, four or five minutes. I mean, that's a huge time gap on a stage like uh, in, in, in a Grand Tour like that. Um, I'm with you. I thought that was a thrilling day of racing. And uh, check out Hoodie's story on the website inside the Vuelta España's Hardest Day because he had some great insight and comments from the riders there. All right. Next stage, I want to take a deep dive into stage 19. That was uh, big, you know, hilly. Another another one of these days, like hilly, kind of a flat day. Um, it goes from, uh, to, into Toledo. And on paper, you look at it. Hey, this is a transfer day. Hey, nothing really is going to happen. And then, of course, uh, this is Avila to Toledo. It was 66 Ks to go. They're going through this town of Escalona, right on the base of this beautiful, stunning old castle. It's rainy, roads a little wet, and they come around a turn, and there is a crash at the front of the field. Tony Martin goes down. Max Ricchese just paid his jeans torn off of him. His jeans, his bike shirts torn off of him. Uh, Miguel Angel Lopez, a whole Astana team crashes. And, you know, the, there's a group that guts up the front. There's a couple of movie star guys in there. Nairo Quintana's in there. Valverde's in there. And they decide to ride and push the pace. And uh, lots of things happen in the ensuing 20Ks. Eventually, everyone got back together. But it it reignited the weight or race debate that we have talked about 
so many times in pro cycling, which is if there's a crash involving the race leader, what do you do? Um, and there were a lot of hard feelings afterwards too. Lopez was given some quotes at the finish line, disparaging Movistar, disparaging Valverde, saying, you know, this is, this is stupid. Like, this is the type of tactics we're used to seeing from them. Um, and, and everyone was, a lot of people were upset. So, Hoodie, first of all, what are your thoughts on the weight or race debate as it pertains to this moment? Um, I, you know, the race announcers were pretty critical of Movie Star for pushing the pace in that moment, but it sounds like there is an argument to be made on the side of Movie Star and their tactic on the day. Yeah, it's it's this you know one of these unwritten rules of cycling. You know, you don't attack a race leader when he's on the ground, and so it's, it's a conversation we've had ad nauseum over the years, and. But it's it's a, it's a it's a judgment call. It's there's a, there's a right time perhaps to wait for someone. There's a wrong time to attack. And I think in this case, you can make the argument that Movistar did not do themselves any favorite favors by pressing the the pace of the front. And they they weren't, they weren't the only team up there pushing. There were some other riders out there. CCC and uh, Quickstep also has some numbers up there, and they were and they're driving the pace. But typically, the general rule is you know you always race. You don't wait. If you wait, you don't win the race. So the general instinct, the general kind of attitude is the race is on. You're going. I mean, 65 Ks to go. That's pretty close to the finish line. And what happened? People seem to only focus on the GC in these scenarios like, oh, how could you be so unsportsmanlike and attack the uh, the race leader when he's fallen? Um, but as a result of that stall in the chase, the breakaway won that day. And you think, well, it doesn't matter. Who cares if the breakaway won? But there's a lot of teams in every race, and every Grand Tour especially, where they might have targeted that day. In fact, I know Caja Rural, who left this Vuelta España, they didn't win a, a stage during this whole Vuelta. And their whole success was really decided by if they won one stage. And this was one of those stages they had targeted. So they were very upset that, uh, you know, because the, 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 the breakaway at that point was only a minute off the front. So the, the anticipation was the break was going to come back together. The break would be caught. The race would happen to re- reinitiate the race. And Kahara would have a chance and other teams as well. But so, you know, when do you wait and when do you race? I mean, typically – you always just race, but there are some exceptions, of course, uh, depending on the race scenario, how far away it is from the mission, how how bad the rate the crash is. And in this case, you can make the argument quite obviously that you know Movistar rode past that crash. They could see how bad it was. I mean, there were just riders just felt like dom- felt like dominoes in that situation, and all those Movistar guys went by and they saw. Uh, uh, Lopez on the ground, and they saw Roglic on the ground, and they kept riding. So I think in this case, they they erred on the wrong side of that of that line. And I thought Valverde missed a big chance to earn some kudos from a lot of people. Had he been out there like Conchalar that one year in in the in the rainbow stripes as the world champion, you know he's the guy who would benefit that scenario. He would be the guy out there making that decision, waving down the uh, peloton, saying, "Hey, we're waiting for these guys." And he didn't do it. And I think in this case, he deserved a lot of the criticism. Yeah, the argument that Movistar gave afterwards was like, "Well, hey, we were planning to attack along this section of road anyway, so um, this crash actually came just before our strategic goal of the day was to like try and break things up on this section of road. Whether or not that was true, that was the line. That was the party line they gave everyone. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. We've seen it so many times before. The one that comes to mind, the most recent one, was 2017 Tour de France Stage 15. Chris Froome gets a uh, flat tire. This was a, going across the Massif. Central to Le Puy and Valais, 
Why do I remember this? Because Lapuy and Valet has famous lentils. That's right. They gave us they gave us lentils when we went there. It was really great. Uh, but Froome gets a flat tire, and Roman Bardet has Ajay Duzer go on the front and really crank up the pace. Froome has a fairly quickish wheel change with Kwiatkowski, but has to has to chase. It's hilly profile, and. You know, there was no guarantee that he was going to get back on and he was in the yellow jersey. And Aja Duzer took a ton of grief from people for the waiter race thing. But, you know, it was same sort of thing. It was like 30, 35 Ks to go. It was like in the heat of battle. They were already pushing the pace on the front when Froome got his flat tire. And so that's a scenario in which you say, well, you know, none of these things are cut and dry unless it's like, okay, you know. You know, Lance Armstrong crashes, yellow jersey, Tyler Hamilton flags. I mean, that's the most like famous example, 2003 tour. But most of these things, it's opaque and it comes down to these judgment calls that have to happen in the moment. And um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I I agree with you. I think that Movistar, you know, you bring up a good point that they they rode past this. They saw how bad it was. They saw Roglic off his bike and people bloodied up and Max Ricci's butt hanging out. They probably should have made the judgment call to wait what I thought was really interesting, though, Hoodie, and you had this in your report, was that as some of these GC riders are trying to chase back on, uh, a lot of them were riding in the cars and riding and drafting off of the team cars, which usually is a big no-no. And if the commissar see you doing that, there's a fine, maybe even a time penalty. penalty. And uh, the race jury just sort of looked the other way. They kind of knowingly... Uh, looked the other way as these guys were trying to catch back on. So it was almost their way of saying... Yeah, okay. You know, we don't necessarily agree with what Movistar is doing. We're not going to neutralize the stage, but we're going to kind of yada, yada, wink, wink, let you guys get back on. What did you think of that? Yeah, that was an interesting twist to the story because, as you pointed out, a lot of these things happen in real time. The riders don't really know what's going on, uh, even even in the day of race radio and that the fact that uh, teams have uh, TVs and the team cars. It's not exactly clear, as clear on the road about what's happening in these different scenarios as it is to us sitting on the, uh, sitting watching on the couch. So a lot of times you have to err on the side of the riders in the, in the, in the heat of the moment. I remember the one, the one thing that, that came to my mind too was the chain gate infamous case involving Andy Schleck and Contador in 2010 when uh, Andy Schleck dropped his chain and Contador attacked over the top, uh, I believe in the Pyrenees. And Alberto got a lot of grief for that. But, uh, you know, that was a very different scenario. The finish line was at the bottom of that hill. There were riders attacking off the front. I think Sammy Sanchez won that day, who was a GC threat. So Contador was completely in the right to uh, keep going in that scenario. But yeah, you're right in this instance uh, here at the Welta, the UCR commissaries. In fact, they called it out on the radio. And they said there would not be a barrage. A barrage, of course, is when they block the team cars from coming through and the riders have to pace back as best they can without the assistance of a, of a car. Because a lot of times, you know, you'll see a, a rider crashing and it's allowed without, you know, if it's not too blatant, a rider can weave back through the cars and pace back, you know, especially in a, a puncture or a wheel change or, you know, a rider coming back from a crash. You know, if it's a, a kind of a, a non-consequential part of the race, they'll let the riders come off the off the cars. And that was really surprising in this instance when the group was at this point split up into four or five groups with uh, Movistar and others pushing at the front. Suddenly, you know, Roglic is clearly coming off the wheels of these cars. And uh, the, the, it turned out the UCA jury did make the call. They said no barrage, which is what everyone immediately knew what that meant. And that's when the sport director at Movistar said they called, called his guys off. Like I said, they said that, uh, well, you know, of course, in Spain, 
and they made a big deal out of that saying, well, gee, this is unprecedented that the UCI has imposed itself on the race in a way they never had before. So this is one of these uh, stages that will have you know these little different wrinkles and drama that just make stage racing so much fun to watch. Yeah, well, they never make anyone happy. You, UCI race jury has never made everyone happy. I don't think they've made anyone happy ever. I mean, I was there at the Tour of California when TJ Van Garder crashed it, whatever, 3.3Ks to go, and everyone was bent out of shape. And, oh, and I, uh, I think I, I wrote a column just being like, ah, just let him keep the jersey. He's going to get dropped anyway. And uh, everyone, was, uh, everyone was pretty pretty bent out of shape about that. Especially if you anger the home team, man. You're in Spain and you're uh, and you're you're imposing rules that go against Movistar. Holy cow! Those, those jury members are lucky to get out of Spain alive. Yeah, yeah, I think they kind of had to keep their heads down for a couple of days. But it just, you know, it's just that's part of the magic of a uh, Grand Tour race or just bike racing in general. Open roads, you know, it's the chaos of the moment and a race can turn on an instant. And that's that's what kind of makes these races so fascinating because you never really know what's going to happen. That's why I think that's why I think Primo's was so wound up, so tight. You know, he said that he was, yeah, I, I admit I wasn't smiling very much in this in this Welta because he was just on eggshells because I think he was being pressed every day, even though it looked like he was firmly in control. I think he knew, especially after what happened to him at the Giro, he goes, man, three weeks, it's a lot different than a one week stage race. And it's again what we've talked about throughout this entire three weeks. It's what makes the Welta the Welta. Um, if you are a casual cycling fan, you love the Tour de France. If you are a harder core cycling fan, you love the Giro with its long climbs and the classics. And if you're a real core cycling fan, you're loving that Welta because it's like this every day. You just, you don't know what's going to happen. They, you know, or it's a, it's a flat stage with a 22% climb for 3K at the finish that has a bunch of wind and, and chaos. But that's why we love it, Hoodie. The Vuelta España. Well, Hoodie, I appreciate you going out there, doing some really solid reporting from the uh, from the ground of the Vuelta, even though you were all banged up. Uh, we have the World Championships coming up in a couple of weeks, which it's it's always sad when Grand Tour season ends. Um, I think something that, you know, we, we talked about this on the site, you know, three Grand Tours this year, three first-time Grand Tour winners. I think that is so cool. That is yet another... Uh, element that speaks to cycling's generational shift going on. Um, and that's a story I think we're just going to continue to cover. So, Andy Hood, what are your final thoughts on the Welta before we let the good listeners get back to their bike rides and commutes? Yeah, it's, it is. I agree. It's always a sad time of the year. It's kind of a the Grand Tour season's over. We got the Worlds, the Fall Classics. I mean, they just don't have that same heft. You know, it's kind of a one-day shot, and then suddenly bike racing's over. You know, I'd like to try to go find a nice beach somewhere in Thailand and unplug for a couple of weeks because, uh, you know, this time of year, Fred, we're burned out, you know. But, you know, the bike racing season keeps going. It keeps going, and it never ends. We got cyclocross. We got uh, track racing <laughs> and before you know it, it's the spring training camps and uh, we'll be all jazzed up and ready to go again well you're right Andy it's a very long season uh, don't blame you if you're feeling a little burned out but the world of bike racing the bike racing schedule does not slow down because like you mentioned cyclocross is starting up now uh, and before we get out of here I wanted to play an interview that I did this week with a cyclocross racer Magalie Rochette who won the World Cup cyclocross uh, opening weekend this past weekend in iowa city magley is a canadian racer she's been around the scene for a long time and uh, we caught up to talk about cross e-bike racing and a whole bunch of other stuff so andy i will let you get out of here we're gonna let this interview with magley play us out 
My next guest on the Villain News podcast is Magalie Rochette. We are recording this on the Tuesday after Magalie completely dominated the cyclocross racing weekend at, in Iowa City at Jingle Cross, winning both the Sunday Jingle Cross race and Saturday winning the World Cup opener. First World Cup win for Magalie. A first Canadian World Cup win in a really long time. Uh, Magalie, thanks for making some time for us today on the Villain News Podcast. First question, what was the celebration like? Take me through the post-race celebration. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's really, really cool to to be on this podcast. Um, the celebration, it was... <laughs> Well, first I started. Uh, it started out by many hugs and and kisses with the people that were there at the start line, and those people, um, people that were important for me included uh, David, who is my my boyfriend, partner, mechanic. Um, he he's my partner in crime in everything we do, and it was pretty special to celebrate that with him. And and then Katerina was there, who was actually like five seconds behind me, and. We are really good friends, so it was pretty cool to be celebrating that with her. Uh, the rest of the Cliff Pro team, which is not my team anymore, but still, they, they kind of feel like a second family because I spent so much time with them, and they have had a, they played a huge role in my career so far, so it was special to celebrate that with, with them. So once those first hugs were done, I spent, I spent a good five minutes completely bawling on the UCI TV <laughs> coverage. I was just, I couldn't believe it really. So I just kept crying. Um, and then we had the podium. Uh, we had a press conference and tied opening all these things. Uh, then I spun back home. Like I rode 10 minutes to get back home because I knew we had the race the next day. And, and then it was already 8.30 at night, so I didn't really do much, honestly. We ordered some Thai food with David, and we, I called my parents, my sister. It, it was actually pretty mellow because I was so excited that like, I, I felt I couldn't... I don't know. I, it, was like, it was a pretty normal evening, just a lot of excitement, a lot of, a lot of joy. Um, and then we did it all again the next morning. So I guess I was quickly reminded that... I have to enjoy it. It's really awesome. But in the end, life goes on and, and you still have to get going with the life. Yeah, I suppose that is the challenge of winning the uh, biggest race of your career right at the beginning of your cyclocross campaign is that uh, as much, you know, as, as huge a momentous occasion it is, you just have to get right back to it because the races continue. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that was yeah, that that I mean, you said it right. That's probably the the biggest challenge, and I was hit with it straight away because the next morning we had to race again. I mean, I wanted to race again, but honestly, in the morning I was like not feeling it that much. I was just I think the adrenaline was finally coming down a little bit, and so I didn't have quite the same energy. But I thought the way I saw it was like this is my first chance to actually get over that and just keep going with the little things that I have to do and keep doing my best really because it's really cool to win a world cup but if i want to do it again i need to keep doing the right things um correctly so it was cool to have that opportunity so quickly so i had a chance to like get on with it and just focus and try to do my best again and and it worked out and so that was really cool and then after that we had a good dinner with friends so that was nice 
but now now you said it like there's another world cup next weekend and so the focus is on that right now when you think back to the world cup race itself and i went back and watched it again uh the other night and you know you were you were climbing very well handling the technical sections of the course very well what are the scenes that are still fresh in your mind from that race especially the scenes that speak to why you were able to win what are the what are the moments that come to your mind yeah that's a good question and there's one particular moment um I think it was, and I would need to look at the, to watch the race again to know exactly when it happened, but I think it was on lap three, and I had been at the front for about two and a half laps, and I was starting to suffer, and for a second, I I thought, like, oh, oh, maybe I went too early, <laughs> and I could see that Katarina and Clara Hansinger were, were catching up a little bit, so that was a really key moment, because a part of me started panicking and a part of me started saying like, Oh my God, like they're going to catch up maybe. Oh, you know what? Mags like a podium is actually good. I don't, it's okay if I don't win. And then like when I said that the other part of me were started thinking of all, all the work that went through like to the, into this. And, and then I thought, you know what? Like, it's fine. Don't panic. Stay calm. You want to win this. Like a podium would be good, but that's not what you want. You want to win. And so I made a new plan in my mind and I decided, you know what, I'll just, they're catching up anyway, I'll just accept that and I'll let them catch up. And I'll just relax and recover a little bit, allow them to catch up to me and when they do, I'll hang on to them and see what happens next. And I think that was really the key moment that allowed me to win because I could have panicked and when they passed me, I would have get dropped instantly. But instead, I decided to accept and, and be like, all right, like, I'll just recover now and then I'll go later. And, and then what happened next is that I rode with them for a lap. And when we came up Mount Crumpet, the run up, once again, I thought my, my original plan was to follow Clara up the climb. But I don't know what happened. I had like a brain explosion and, and I just decided to attack again. So <laughs> I, it wasn't really a planned decision, but I kind of started running faster. And once I had a little gap, I just tried to get, get to go, keep it going until the end. I feel like that's a very useful uh, brain explosion. It's a good yes. use of a brain explosion was, in the moment. It was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> So, Magli, you mentioned this in your first answer, and it's, you know, we've we've covered you here at VeloNews for a number of years. You were a very prominent member of the Luna and Cliff Pro teams for a number of years. You started your career with them. You were a development rider uh, on the, both the mountain bike and the cyclocross. You spent a number of years in that program. Um, at the midpoint of last year's mountain bike season, uh, Cliff... Um, announced that they were taking a different direction. They were focusing more on domestic racing, um, not as much with the World Cups, not as much with international travel. And you, as a person who had international uh, accolades um, in cyclocross, went and started your own program. It was called Specialized CX Fever. And since then, you have operated your own uh, program as a cyclocross racer. And first of all, I, I, I I give you a lot of kudos for that. I commend you. It's, well, thank you. <laughs> it's not easy to be to run your own program. Um, what are some of the differences and some of the lessons that you learned last year operating the CX Fever specialized program? The, you know, the, the the key differences between being part of a um, sort of factory team like you were with Cliff 
and then running your own program and some of the lessons that you learned from that experience? That is a really good question. I think, um, well, first of all, I'm really lucky because my partner, David, does it with me and I could honestly not do it by myself. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot to do. You like taking care of all the relationships and uh, the scheduling and the budget and all these things. It's a lot and I could not do it by myself. I would say one of the biggest lesson is that, well, it's easy to get carried away in wanting to do so much because you really care about the relationship that you have with your partners. And so you always want to do more. I, I know for me that I always want to do more and I'm like, oh, I have to give it more and I have to do more. But at the end of the day, I have to remind myself that the reason why I'm able to do that is because of the racing. And so it's really important for me to keep the focus on the training and doing that that's like my main my main thing. That's what I have to do first thing when I wake up. It's the main objective of my day. Do my training, recovering, all of that first. And then I can work on all the fun projects and ideas that we have. So I think that's one of the big lessons. Um, I, I, I say lesson because I have done like the forget to recover because I was doing all of that, that other work. And, and so it's really important to keep that because otherwise – quickly your result will go away and then you you can't really I mean that's kind of the, the foundation of the, the all the relationships so it's really important to keep that in mind um and then if you ask for like the main differences I would say I would say that it's what, what it allowed me is that now I can really have my own schedule and by that I mean if I'm sick one morning and I can't race well it's easy to just fly home by myself like I'm not dependent on a big production so sometimes it's easier to make quick decisions like that Um, if I need to I don't know go for a spin in the morning it's it's easy because I'm deciding at what time I'm leaving for the next venue it's just all dependent of, of on myself so that makes it easier that being said, sometimes I do miss having teammates. I, I really, really have, I mean, I had great relationships with everyone on this team and we we just had so much fun and you can learn so much from being surrounded by such champions and sh- such successful people. So sometimes I miss that, but at the same time, I still see them at the races and we still pre-ride together sometimes or have dinner. So it's um, it's been a good experience. After... Team Cliff Bar made its decision to focus on a domestic program. I mean, how did you take that decision? You know, you were ostensibly not on the team anymore if you wanted to have international ambitions. Um, Did you see it as a setback? And how did you work through um, whatever initial feelings you may have had around that decision? Um, I would say it it actually kind of all happened um, in in a... I, it couldn't couldn't have been more timely, if that makes sense, because I was already th- thinking in my mind that I wanted to try to focus on cyclocross. Um, I know some people do really well doing all the disciplines, but I, I was finding it a little bit difficult to perform at my 100% while racing all season long. So I was already thinking about, oh, you know, maybe I want to do like more cyclocross. And and then when this happened, I it was a very amicable and uh, friendly, a very friendly exchange that I had with the team, and they really supported my my goals, and I supported what they wanted to do, and so we just had an agreement, and that 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 they would allow me to leave the team if I wanted to. Uh, now, what's pretty incredible is that Cliff Bar 
actually kept supporting me through that whole year. And even though we terminated the contract so I could pursue my own my own goals in cyclocross, Clivbar still kept supporting me um, in all the ways you can imagine. So that was that was pretty amazing. And and I think I think since we were both trying to go different directions at the same time, I, yeah, it was just a good timing, and that meant that we could do things very in a very friendly way. So that was to me really important, and um, it just made everything easier. So now you have this program where you're focusing solely on cyclocross and your both domestic and international cyclocross goals. You know, I've heard from talking to um, pro riders over the years that it's sometimes difficult to carve out the amount of financial support you need from sponsors to keep yourself going for just the cyclocross season. That's why you see a lot of, you know, traditionally the guys would race uh, pro road or pro mountain bike seasons and same with some of the um, female riders. I'm curious, are you able to do it full, uh, full time? Do you have um, other projects that you work on through the other part of the year to keep you going? Um, how do you make it work as a cyclocross centric professional athlete from a financial standpoint? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I'll start with next, last year because that was the base, that, that was the foundation of it, and that's what allowed us to know how much we needed for this year. So ne- last year, I said Clivar kept supporting me, and we and Specialized came on board very quickly. Um, but still, David and I knew that if we wanted to do it, last year we had to invest of our own money into it. And so that's what we did last year. Um, and so that to- that allowed us to know how much we needed. So we already started working on it at the end of the season last year. Um, I'm I w- I think I'm really lucky. I have really great financial, I, I really great partners, and actually I can make it happen with just doing cyclocross. Um, I think there's two ways to see it, and one of the one of the ways is that. Yes, you just race for this part of the season, so like maybe it's not working. But at the same time, the way I see it is that it allows me to do other things for my sponsors in the summer. And so this summer we did, we filmed a little gravel adventure film that we applied to the Benz Mountain Film Festival. So it's it's just another way to bring um, awareness and I guess just a, to bring attention to the products and to what my partners are doing uh, we did a cyclocross camp. So you just have to be creative with how you do it. Um, so, I, yeah, I just the, the way I see it, it just allows me more flexibility to do different things for, for my partners. And, and it's super cool this year because uh, after last year, Specialized supported me even more. And Feedback Sports came on board as a, as a really big uh, co-title sponsor. And then a lot of different brands are in to support us as well. So... Um, I think I'm lucky, but it's really we're, we we also work hard for that. But it's really fun. We have we really have good support. So Magali, you've had some experience racing over at the World Cups in Europe. Where do you think you have room to improve, and where do you think you are already where you need to be? Well, I think if for anyone who has seen the race this weekend, will or have anyone who has watched my results at the Cuxider World Cup will know that I really need to work on my sand technique. <laughs> so that's, that's one thing I really, really need. I mean, I finished the race and David and I were talking, we're like, 
well, I really need to work on writing in this sense. So that's one thing. Um, and I think, I mean, the way I see it, you, you can always improve. So I, I just, I just think I want to improve a little bit on every single thing. Um, I, I think the biggest difference that I made this year was mostly maybe the mental preparation. I think I've been able to stay calm a little bit more and just focus on the right thing rather than getting, I don't know, kind of then ruining my, my own self before the race because I was too nervous. So it's like being able to control myself was one of the big things I, I changed this year. But I still have to work on that. I have to keep working on the power, keep working on the acceleration. It's really, really fast racing in Europe. So being able to have the speed is really important. So, I, I mean, a lot of things I need to keep working on, I think. Um, you raced the e-bike world championships. And, uh, I, you know, I was really enthralled by this e-bikes in initial world championships because some of the organizers had told me, oh, it's about battery management and it's about knowing the machine and all these different things. I was hoping you could take us through your e-bike world championship race. You famously, is very, very tightly contested race. You finished a very close yeah. second. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about the race. Yeah, I, it was it was actually really cool. And I was skeptical, you know, I, like everyone, like everyone else, I think. Um, but so it started, it was a really steep learning curve because no one really knew what the course would be like. No one knew how long the race would be. Um, at first, we thought it would be two hours, but then three days before the race, they said it's going to be an hour, hour 15. So suddenly, the battery management thing was not as much of an issue. Um, what I can say, though, is that it was really, really challenging physically and technically. And it is, um, I'll, I'll say that, I thought it would be very similar to a cross-country race. And, and since the, the battery, the, the motor of the bike gives you so much power, the power to rate ratio makes an even more, a bigger difference because there's so many more power, so much more power. So I thought the climbing would be the biggest factor and that would make the biggest difference in the race. But what I didn't realize is that the ratio of climbing versus descending, it's completely different than a cross-country race. And the reason for that is that you actually go so fast that you can climb higher in much less time. So I think at the Worlds, the longest climb was probably a minute and 15 seconds. But that got us so high that then we... It was followed by a five-minute descent, like super gnarly descent because the bikes have really big suspension travel. So it's a lot about the techni technical skills and, I mean, a little bit, like definitely physical. Like every time that minute that minute uphill was completely full gas and then you have to manage the bike going downhill. Um, it's also quite difficult to go uphill in technical section because every time you give the first pedal stroke it's like 600 watts or 500 watts so you go really 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 fast and it's kind of hard to control the bike so it made for a very intense race um i mean i had to be on it mentally and physically for the whole time like it there's there's just no rest you you would think there would be but there really isn't because sometimes when you would go a little bit slower on a normal bike, you have to be so focused mentally now because it just goes really, really fast. So it made for a really tight race, super exciting. Um, I worked for like three laps to open and I worked hard, like I promised, to open an 11 seconds gap. 
which is tiny. And then I made one mistake and then she caught up to me and then it was super tight to the finish. So, I mean, I think as a racer, that's what you want. You want to be pushed and having such a tight battle just was amazing. Uh, so, Magli, which European round of the World Cup do you have your sights set on? Which one would you most want to win? Oh, good question. I think, I mean, all of them. <laughs> but <laughs> the truth, I think Namor would be so special. It's like, it's iconic. It's such a cool course. It's always brutal conditions, brutal course. Uh, that would be, and it's just before Christmas. Like, it would be the coolest thing, I think. Well, you heard it here, folks. We will be uh, watching the Namor World Cup to see how you do. <laughs> and chapeau again to you, Magali. First World Cup win. Uh, first of many, I'm predicting. Um, and you are uh, showing, showing us how it's done, not just on the course, but also in putting together your own program. Um, very, thank you so much. Very admirable what you've been able to accomplish. Oh, thank you, Fred. I really, really appreciate that. It means a lot. Good luck this weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye.